So I was um, in, in Lanzagrotti uh, doing this uh, sports outreach week uh, with some mates and a bunch of guys who aren't Christians. There are 36 guys out there and we do like sport all day. And then I, we preach the gospel in the evening and then we hang out, do a bit of late night karaoke, stuff like that, all for the purposes of bonding, of course. And, um, and um, that was beautiful. And just before we did that, we did this cycle ride across South Africa, which was, you know, felt at times like a mistake, if I'm honest with you, because it was like 38 degrees and we were cycling up Ben Nevis every day, but not at the actual Ben Nevis, but you know, the equivalent height and, and like hundreds of miles and stuff. But in one sense, it was amazing because we'd be like cycling up like, these massive climbs and then you'd have these descents along the, along the garden route in South Africa, these descents along the sea and you'd see like dolphins and, and baboons and like parrots flying over at the same time. And you know, it was all a bit like Garden of Eden. It was a bit Narnia. It was all a bit Narnia. You know, I mean, sometimes it was just like horrific because you'd be cycling through like desert nothing like you just look and there'd be miles and miles and miles of just like undulations and climbing. But other times it was just like beautiful. And, and something strange happens when you do that. I found that every day, so I've done a few of these stupid things before. I think it was my fourth stupid thing. When you do that, you like get up at six and all you've got to do is pump your bicycle tires up, make sure you've got a few energy bars in your back pocket, have a bit of porridge or a banana, which I hate unless I'm cycling. They're disgusting, but I eat them when I'm cycling. I was having this conversation earlier, it's a random fact. Anyway, I, I, I rank it with beetroot for its disgustingness. So anyway, all you gotta do is put that stuff in your pockets and then cycle for six hours. That's beautiful. Then you get to the end of the day and you have a cold Diet Coke or maybe a beer and, and you know have some food and then go to sleep and you get up the next day and you cycle. And it was really weird because all kinds of work pressures are out there and you've got you know, your family back at home and you know, my stuff got nicked on day three and all of that stuff. But somehow life became really simple. I became, for eight days, a professional cyclist. And that was my job. And all I, I felt like I was in the Tour de France. And all I had to do, I mean a slightly stocky Tour de France cyclist, albeit, but all I had to do was get up every day and cycle my bike. And it was really weird. Because like people from work were like emailing me with loads of questions or hassles or like budget review questions or someone kicking off about something. And I'd be cycling and thinking, I don't care. I just don't care. Because do, I'm a professional cyclist. And we all felt like that. It's like everything got stripped away. And it's amazing how simple life becomes. Suddenly, all that matters is you get to the top of a big climb and you'd see a tree with a bit of shade. And it became a beautiful thing. Like, it was just so simple. I'd just sit under the shade and drink cold water. Or sometimes it was warm, because it was 38 degrees. It's like drinking hot tap water. It's a bit disgusting when you're hot. In fact, you know sometimes you're really hot and you squirt water over yourself and it's all cold and refreshing. That was like having a hot shower. So we just stopped doing that. But life became like stripped away and simple. Like and basic and, and it was beautiful. You just felt your stress lift off. Then you come back and you go back into normal life. And it was for me it was an exercise in just the radical difference. You know, in fact, it it it, it highlighted to me what a grind life can be sometimes. Because I came back and I'm straight back into it. 
you know, get up early, go to work, hundreds of emails, stuff. And I think life can contain quite a lot of pressure, can't it? Actually. I mean, if you're honest, I mean, we like to be a happy church where, you know, when we come here, there are no issues or problems. We're all happy. And we eat cake after, and drink, well, sometimes if someone brings it. We have biscuits, custard creams, and we drink tea, and everything's wonderful. And we meet each other, we all smile. But actually, sometimes under the surface, life is a little bit of a thing. We have stresses in money, relationships, work, school pressures. And, and I don't think we always know in society how well to deal with it. Or how to deal with it well. Let's put it that way. Like, you know, you know, and I'm not having a go at anyone, you know when the wheels have come off in society, when we alleviate stress by watching soap operas. If you think about it, something has gone madly wrong. Why do we try and alleviate stress by watching neighbours? Or we saw at home, by mistake, 30 seconds of Hollyoaks. I'm, I'm in therapy. It was, it, was, it, was dis- it was disgustingly horrible with bad acting. But you think, what has happened to us? Like, it's weird. Because if you watch, I mean, I know no, no one here watches them. But if you, if you were to watch EastEnders, it is apparently, apparently, it is full of, Divorce and trauma and heartache and gossip and death and mayhem and, and, and bankruptcy and you fancy him and I fancy her and all. Oh. They say it in that voice as well. And it's just like, it's weird. It's like weird escapism. Now, I, I think a day like today is a stark reminder to us and, and hopefully amazing news that people have not encountered this before, but life does not have to consist of alleviating our stress through soap operas. And life, while it can be a grind, and can, on a serious note, at times be incredibly painful, can't it? Incredibly painful and and quite soul-destroying, sometimes for long periods, there can be a greater hope. And not just a fictitious, weird, vain hope that maybe it's going to be all right. There is a hope that is real that light can break into your life. I remember the first time, let me try and explain this um, whole resurrection stuff. I was just thinking, you know, if you came here into this church and you'd never, um, you'd never experienced Christianity before and you're singing a song like The Lamb Has Overcome and you're about to go home for a roast lamb dinner, that might be a really confusing. What is all that about? Why are they talking about lambs overcoming stuff? Because you wouldn't know, would you? I mean, because most people talk about lambs in, in association with mint sauce. So we don't, we don't get it. In fact, Maria was, was praying. We prayed before the meeting, which you're all welcome to. Maria was praying before the meeting. We all get together. And she said, you know, God, Easter is not about the Easter bunny. That, that was a shock to me. I didn't know that until that point. So I've rewritten my talk. But that was, that was breaking news. But for some people, that is breaking news on a serious note. Easter is about consuming as much chocolate as you can without being sick. So we need to try and step back a bit and think about this whole resurrection stuff and what does it mean and how, how, does, how does light shine into our lives? I remember back in the day, the first time I got a computer virus, it was slow death. You know when, when in, back in the day, if you got a, a computer virus, I don't know the light now because I've got an Apple Mac and they don't get viruses. 
You can instantly tell the Primer Mac I'm a PC person. Right, so anyway, Macs don't get viruses. So um, I remember when I, when I used to have this thing called a, a, a Dell PC, and um, it got a virus. And, and at first what happened was it just started slowing down. Like it just went a bit slow, which is really frustrating. In fact, isn't it amazing how we get conditioned to speed in things like computers, like you want everything fast. Now if I have to wait 10 seconds, get really stressed out. But anyway, it started to really slow down. And then eventually over a period of like a week or two, it just sort of stopped. It was a virus that went into the system and started to slowly corrupt stuff. In a sense, what we Christians call sin has a very similar effect. And you have to almost go back really to the dawn of time and the Bible's accounts of the, the early emergence of man in, in the stories of Genesis 3 to see what actually happened here. Um, I'm going to read that in a bit. But let me just put this out to you, that I think um, our programming from the earliest uh, sort of breath that we draw is essentially self-centered and selfish. This might sound harsh, but I, I remember back when my kids were babies, I'm pretty convinced, sorry about this girls, some stuff's going to come your way. I'm pretty, didn't clear it with you first, apologies. Forgive me, Christians. I'm convinced that they didn't scream and cry for my benefit. I think they screamed and cried for themselves, selfishly. I'm pretty sure that there were times it was the only way they could communicate to make a noise. But there were other times they did it because they were full of sin. So let me give an example. Annie, this is like a little angel sitting over there. Beautiful Annie. I, when, when, when she was younger, dare I say, we did go through a period of time when she was younger, maybe like 13, 14, when she would cry through the night. No, maybe, maybe I, did I get that wrong? I meant when you were like 10, 11 months. How, how old was she when she was doing this horrific thing? Nine months. Okay. She about, now, you might say I'm going to sound harsh here, Victorian dad. But anyway, she would cry through the night. Now, many parents face this issue, and you have options. You can go in and placate your child. You can cuddle them, and latest theories are just, just bomb them with love. Bomb them with love, and they'll get through it. My experience is they don't. They manipulate you through sin, <laughs> and they twist you around their little fingers, and if you don't deal with it with brutality and harshness, they will go on to become spoiled brats all of their lives. So Karen and I, we had conversations about this issue. My, my view was just leave her outside on the driveway and she'll stop, she'll stop crying. Karen's yours, I must go in. I must go in and placate her and make her, make her feel loved. <laughs> so anyway, um, this went on for some time when eventually getting up every night in the early hours um, was starting to affect us. So we'd be hallucinating about carrots walking around the house because we were through sleep deprivation and stuff like that. And, and then uh, eventually we came to a point where Karen and I had a unified approach where we would leave her to cry. And, and leave her we did. But the first time we tried to do it, she cried and she cried and she cried. And Karen gave in. And in the early hours, she walked in to see Annie 
who had been screaming and crying. You'd think she's in agony that the, the world is falling apart, that you know everything in the world is horrible and she's in immense pain and torment. torment. Karen walked in and Annie looked at her and went, <laughs> it was like, I've won. I got you back. Guess what happened? Annie was left on a driveway and she never did it again. That's not what happened. So, this is a little parenting, parenting tip. This love bombing stuff. I mean, sometimes you've got to love your kids, but sometimes, you know, need a little bit of rough treatment, I think. You know, leave them, leave them, to, leave them to cry and they stop. You, I mean, you're not traumatized now, are you? Yeah, okay, moving on. So, Genesis 3. Uh, now, the serpent, this is, this is the account of, of the fall of man as given in the Bible. Now, the serpent, obviously speaking of Satan, was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, God has said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden. The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of, gar of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die. For God knows in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And when a woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate and she also gave it to her husband with her and he ate. And the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. <coughs> and the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she, she gave it to me. And I ate it, passing on the blame. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. And then, if you read on, you'll see that suddenly the beauty of Edom has turned on its head. The ground was cursed. Enmity crept in. Destruction hit the world. Death came into the world, the Bible says, through sin. A couple of little interesting asides there. Isn't it, isn't it amazing how the devil gets to people. It's like you hear the voice of the Lord and then and then the enemy creeps in and says, Did 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 God say that? I mean, did he? Really? You know, those little seeds of doubt and then no 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 no. No, no. God's only said that because it'll mean that, that, that you know this this'll happen, which would be a good thing. Now I mean every satanic attack it seems to me is often like that. It's like word of doubt. Yeah, yeah, you'll be all right. You'll be all right. And you go for this sort of short-term gain thing. But then death came into the world. You know, did, did God, this, did, God didn't mean that you'll die. But actually, it's like a computer virus. Sin came into the world. Selfishness, self-centeredness, corruption came into creation. And slowly but surely, things started to fall apart. Interesting too, I think you see the impact in this passage of, you know, that instant response of shame. Just wanted to, to, wanted to hide, 
hide from God, cover themselves. And do you know what? Over, over nearly 25 years of pastoral work now, do you know one of the biggest impacts I've seen on people's lives? The impact is shame. The enemy loves to shut people down so that their gaze is on the ground. Can't lift their eyes to God. Just feel shame. The amount of time I've, I've been sat talking to people where they've said something like, and I'm paraphrasing now, but so many times, if you knew what was in my life, you'd never want me in your church. If you knew what was really going in my life, you'd, you'd, never, you'd never love me. You'd never want to talk to me. The amount of times I've sat talking to people like that, they've not even wanted to look me in the eye. You know, and sometimes, you know, people can often come across as, you know, a little bit standoffish, but actually it's just shame. Do you know, shame drives people mad. A lot of illness, a lot of emotional illness comes from shame. And you see that here, just wanting to hide from God. This initial impact here in Genesis 3, I think many psychiatrists and psychologists would do well to read this and see how that just crept into society. But then, of course, we have Good Friday, which you've just merged from. And if you read a passage like Isaiah 53, if you go back in the Chronicles of Redeemer King, you'll find a sermon we preached on why did Jesus die. And Isaiah 53 is this beautiful passage of how when Jesus died, this great exchange took place. That he bore our sin and took our guilt and our shame. Jesus had everything pummeled into him. Good Friday, the cross, all of this was taken into Jesus' body so that we can be forgiven. The lamb that has overcome, the lamb of God, the sacrificial lamb, so no more sacrifice. One man died. The second Adam lived perfectly. The second Adam came. Jesus Christ took all our mess and our stuff that Dan was just talking about and set us free. I've mentioned this illustration, I think, before some months ago. But I often, I often talk about it when I'm talking to men particularly when I do my men's stuff. But a few years ago now, I was meditating on the cross and how the enemy attacks us through shame and life and stuff. And in my mind, I started to picture the, the, the bullfighting. That I've never seen a bullfight because I don't like cruelty to animals, actually. I like eating them, but let's kill them nicely. That's my view. You know, I don't like cruelty, so I wouldn't go and see a bullfight. But, but I read up on it because I just felt the Lord prompt me weirdly about, about this image. And what I found out was, now I think I've said it to you before, that when the matador comes out and does his stuff... Uh, he's, it's a setup that these guys called banderellos have already come out on horseback with little tiny spears and they run around the ball until it actually wears it out and then they stab the ball in the back of the neck intentionally to sever the ball's neck muscles and so through a lot of blood loss and through the severing of neck muscles the ball is now weak and it can't lift its head up you don't know if you knew that, but the ball, that's why the ball's always hunched down like this. It's, it's lost its use of its neck muscles, and it's, it's weak through blood loss. I thought, God, why are, you, why are you giving me this horrific image? But I felt that's how Satan attacks us, see, and how he's attacked some of you. The spears are the, the things of life, the grind, the work pressure, depression, marital breakdown, money worries the spears get thrust into our necks and you see this with people through shame and the pressures of life and the grind 
our heads aren't lifted up. The nearest we get to having stress alleviated is watching EastEnders. And it don't work. Or we drink ourselves into oblivion. Or get more sex or snort some stuff. or Whatever it is. But it doesn't work. It takes you to a place at first. But it doesn't work. Or like Justin came and he, he had a little bit of a gamble. And lost a million quid. Like your sin takes you to places you don't want to go. And often we enter into these things because we're just, we're in pain, actually. And then we have this beautiful image of the cross in Isaiah 53 and in the Gospels, which is essentially spear removal. The spears come out of our necks and they're thrust onto Jesus. So he takes it all, all the pain and all the mess. But of course, it doesn't end there, does it? Because this is Easter. And Easter, the story continues. And we have this beautiful account in John 20. And because it's Easter Sunday, I'm going to read the whole thing out. Because it's beautiful. And it is not from a version that you might normally read, but I, I do like my old, my old style versions. I think it comes across a little bit majestic. So just, let's, just, let's just listen to this. And the detail in this story is incredible. So spear removal has happened, but there's a second stage. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb. So Jesus has been killed. His body's been placed into a tomb. And while it was still dark, and saw that the stone already taken away from the tomb. So she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter and the other disciple, oh, my eyes, went forth, and they were going to the tomb. The two were running together, and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. So John, John out sprints Peter, but a younger man. Uh, and stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he didn't go in. And so Simon Peter also came, possibly a bit out of breath, following in, and enter the tomb. Peter's a bit more impetuous. So John, he outsprints Peter, gets there and thinks, whoa, what is going on? Peter's like, I'm going to get me some of this. I'm checking it out. And he's straight in there. He came following him, entered the tomb, and saw the linen wrappings lying there, and the face cloth which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. So the other disciple who had come first to the tomb, then also entered. So he draws his courage from Peter, and he then goes in. And he saw and believed, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. So the disciples went away again to their own homes. But Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping, and so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting at the head and one of the feet where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. And when she said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and didn't know it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabbanai which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. 
but I go to my brethren and say to them, I send to my father and your father and my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene came announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and that he had said these things to her. Bit amazing. Bit amazing. And for 2,000 years, they've tried to disprove the resurrection. All kinds of theories. Did the Romans steal the body? Well, if they'd stolen the body and all this massive stuff all kicked off afterwards, they would have produced it again. Why the disciples have stolen the body and then gone to their deaths, often in the most horrific manner, just because it was a fraud that they were perpetrating? They wouldn't have done it, would they? For 2,000 years. In fact, there was a guy called Lee Strobel, who was a leading lawyer, who wrote an account of, uh, of the resurrection to disprove it with some other leading lawyers. And, and, and they got together to say, if, if the resurrection story was put in a court of law, would it stand? And they set out to disprove the resurrection from a legal point of view. And every single one of them gave their lives to Christ. Because the story stood, and you can still buy that book today, by a man called Lee Strobel. It's a great book to give away to people. So you have the spear removal, and then you have the ultimate proclamation from the second Adam, that death has been defeated. The curse of sin for all time has been broken. Two responses, really, you see in, in Peter and John there, which is quite remarkable, I think, quite pertinent to us. You've got, like, John who stands back and Peter who rushes in. And, 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 and you have that. I see that in people today. People tentatively making steps towards the Lord. Even when they believe, they're like, am I all in or not? And then you've got, like, Peter who's the impetuous one. It's like, yeah, I'm in. Very interesting. I, I'm not going to make a big thing out of that. But I just, I just, it was an interesting reflection as I read it. And then I was chatting to Karen. We were, we were toodling back from Manchester late last night on a very badly planned night out, the, the night the clock uh, go forward. Um, uh, there you go. And Karen said, but there's this verse in, in Romans, I think is so, such a good way for us to land on today. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal body through his spirit who dwells in you. Through the resurrection of Jesus, the death and the resurrection of Jesus, we have the power to live a new life. We don't have to have our heads down anymore. Shame can be taken away from you. We have resurrection DNA. You can know forgiveness no matter what. No matter what. Do you know what my response is often to people who say to me, if you knew what was in my life, you wouldn't want me in my church. I often say, if I knew what was in your life, I'd probably love you more. Because when you're honest before the Lord and you allow his forgiveness to flow into your life, you're a new person. You're a new creation. The Bible says you're born again. And even when you've known the Lord, we can mess up. We can mess up. But that's why we've got stories like the prodigal son when we finally realise what we need, even when we had knowledge of God before, the Lord puts his arm around us and welcomes us back. There's always a way back to the Father, in my opinion. There's always a way back. Shame can be dealt with. Your head can be lifted up. I think the enemy, and I do believe we have an enemy set against us, wants us to be looking down at the ground with our horizons narrowed, no hope, no peace, no potential, no future. I think what the Holy Spirit is saying to us, up, well, Jesus is risen again. You can look up. You can look up to the Lord. New hope, new life, new future, new destiny. 
new potential, new community, new family, new horizons. Life is different. Now you can look up, and this is for eternity. This isn't, just, this isn't just for this week. It's not just in a moment. This is for eternity. You can lift up your gaze. You can see the Lord. Over the years, I've just seen some beautiful stories of that. I remember being in Belfast, sitting in front of an ex-IRA terrorist and an ex-RUC undercover policeman. And you know what the RUC, but they're sitting there having a cup of tea together. It was so surreal. So surreal. I'm there with an ex-terrorist and an undercover RUC policeman having a cup of tea in the same living room around the RUC officer's house. He said he used to come out and check his car for bombs at a mirror. There was huge security in his door, always had a gun on him. He said, we used to hunt each other, me and him. We used to hunt each other on the streets of Belfast. He said, and then we both met Jesus, and now we run a men's group together, and we're in a prayer triplet. Wow. Only because Jesus rose again. I mean, what? That is weird. That didn't happen. Like at the Apollo. We had this guy called Cyril speaking. Six years ago, Cyril was homeless. He was a heroin addict. He was a serial self-harmer. He tried dealing drugs, that went wrong, in and out of prison. And not just to like scratch himself with a razor blade, I mean deeply, deeply cutting himself all over his body. Now loves the Lord. Goes into the prisons where he used to be, preaches the gospel. The other week he came up to me, he goes, I was at work, he went, he works at the message. He went, Beachy, Beachy. He said, I went back in the prison last week. I went, did it go well, mate? He went, yeah. He said, we had 32 people turn up to chapel. I went, how did it go? He went, all 32 got saved. It was awesome. Isn't that amazing? Only because of the resurrection. Only because of the power of the Lord. And that could be the same for you. Don't let the enemy put your heads down. Keep your eyes up. No matter what you're facing this week, no matter what your struggles are, no matter what shame you feel you're carrying, you don't have to hide from the Lord anymore. Died to set us free and rose again to show that all these things have been defeated. Lift up our heads and see the risen Saviour. What a beautiful thing that is. And I thank my God that at 18 he broke into my life. And for all the ups and downs that I've experienced and all my turnings away from him at times and um, I have a slightly rebellious character. He's still always welcoming me back. Oh, I thank my God for this church. We're a supportive community. I thank my God for each one of you. And I, 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 I sincerely pray that if you are carrying stuff, that you, you feel the peace and love and the power of the risen Lord Jesus in your life. That's why we pray for people at the end of services. I'll finish by saying this little statement. I believe through Romans 8 verse 11 that we have resurrection DNA. No matter what has happened to knock you down or no matter what will come your way one day that might knock you down, we could be knocked down but we will never be knocked out. Ever. And one day, one day, because of the resurrection of Jesus, we will go home. And we will go home together. We will be there. And I've said this before. What, I, what I'm passionate about is not only am I bumping into you lot while I'm working on my heavenly vegetable patch on the new earth, 
wherever it is, I get given, probably a beetroot patch, no my luck. <laughs> that it's not just you lot there, but it's our mates are there and our family members. And there's been reconciliation and amazing and beautiful things have happened. People we thought were like irredeemable are there because we didn't give up, because we lifted our eyes and we believed and we bore witness and we had courage. Even when the days grew darker and darker, we stood for what we believed and people will be home with us. And that will be a beautiful thing. So yes, he meets with us, but he meets with this community out there as well. So let's be resurrection people wherever God's placed us this week.